0: Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm delighted that you could join us today. Over the last decade, the cannabis movement has emerged from its origins as a grassroots crusade into a mainstream campaign to unleash its potential to transform the field of medicine. Not since the discovery of penicillin has a medical discovery generated so much excitement among a growing number of doctors and scientists they now realize its vital importance to human health. And given the voluminous body of clinical evidence that cannabis is a safe, effective alternative to some of the most dangerous prescription drugs, it's really hard to understand why there is still so much resistance within the conventional medical community at large. It's also hard to understand why regulatory reform is still such an uphill battle even in states that permit medical and adult use. While advocates chip away at the stigma, we have a long way to go before the ancestral memory of or Madness is truly a thing of the past. Meanwhile, cannabis is saving lives, particularly among children and elderly patients whose conditions are often linked to severe cannabinoid deficiency. That, we now know, is a common denominator among people suffering with autoimmune, inflammatory, and neurological conditions. That's the topic of our show and something our guest knows a lot about. Dr. Bonnie Goldstein is a pediatric emergency medicine specialist who began incorporating cannabis therapy in her practice more than a decade ago. It was then that she noticed how it helped a critically ill friend. She's seen the therapeutic benefits of cannabis firsthand and now recommends it for a myriad of childhood conditions such as epilepsy and autism, as medical director of CannaCenters, which is a California-based medical practice devoted to educating patients about the use of cannabis for serious and chronic medical conditions. She's a medical consultant to Weedmaps and is a member of the International Association of Cannabis as Medicine, the International Cannabinoid Research Society, and the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. She's also the author of the groundbreaking book, Cannabis Revealed, how the world's most misunderstood plant is healing everything from chronic pain to epilepsy, Frequently invited to give lectures about the medical benefits of cannabis, she will also be presenting at the 2018 Cannabis Science Conference, which is coming up later this month. Welcome, Dr. Goldstein. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So, I want to hear about your book, but before we do that, perhaps you could just explain a little bit about how you became an advocate.
1: Sure, so um, I trained as a pediatric doctor and then I focused on pediatric emergency medicine. I did some critical care transport medicine, very exciting stuff back in the day. And um, I would say that after about uh, 13 years working in the emergency room, I was a little burned out, might be an understatement. And uh, I had my own child and I was trying to, Juggle the world of being a mom during the day and a doctor at night. And I just got really burned out. And I took some time off just to kind of get myself together and to kind of figure out which direction I was going. And just so happens that during that time off, a close friend of mine um, had been diagnosed with a, a medical condition that was quite serious. And she asked me what I knew about medical cannabis. And just like most doctors at the time, I, and even now, I didn't know very much, but I wanted to help my friends, so I looked into the literature, the scientific literature, and I found this unbelievable, um, you know, huge mountain really of scientific literature that supported the use of cannabis for cancer, for nausea, vomiting, for pain, for all kinds of conditions. And I just, you know, it was interesting because I had never really had it on my radar, and once I started looking at it, I became quite intrigued. And it, at the time, you know, things happen sometimes for a reason, and you think, oh, you know, now I maybe should take this path. So I looked um, into working in the medical cannabis um, industry, and I found a position as a medical cannabis physician in Long Beach, California, and I started working at that practice. And I have to say, I didn't know very much, and I learned a lot from the people that came into the practice. They shared their stories, they shared how, and this is with adult patients, by the way, they shared how cannabis was able to get them off painkillers and sleeping pills and anxiety medications. And once you start talking to people and you really listen to the experience that they're having, you pay attention, you know, it became very clear to me that there was medical validity and that many of the patients really had very much the same experience and and how is it that that's possible that all of these different people who don't know each other are getting off pharmaceuticals and what's interesting i used to joke around that they weren't meeting in the parking lot you know coming up with something to say to me so i would approve them this was person after person month after month and after about 3 to 4 months i knew i had found my new
0: uh, medical practice wow and then it- I have to ask, how is your friend doing?
1: She's doing wonderfully. She, um, went through treatment.
0: Um, she had a
1: form of cancer that luckily wasn't terrible. And, but let me tell you the cannabis got her through very simply low doses, gave her the ability to continue to sit at the dinner table instead of laying in bed. It allowed her not to lose a tremendous amount of weight. It allowed her to get through her treatment and, um, She was very nervous about it because she's a pretty, you know, straight and narrow kind of person, and she certainly was um, nervous. And um, the two of us kind of, you know, muddled through together in the beginning, and, you know, both of us have come out the other end big advocates and understanding so much more than when we began.
0: I can imagine. And, you know, what I've heard that also, the cannabis actually makes... It it protects other cells while you're taking in the chemotherapy because, I mean, the nature of chemotherapy is to uh, basically go after the bad cells, but at the same time, it it tends to wreak havoc on the. I can imagine. And you know what? I've heard that also, the cannabis actually protects other cells while you're taking in the chemotherapy because, I mean, the nature of chemotherapy is to basically go after the bad cells. But at the same time, it it tends to wreak havoc on the healthy cells. Have you found that as well?
1: There's no question that I found that. You know, doctors don't get often to say 100% for anything. But in my experience, 100% of my patients that come in with cancer who add cannabis to their regimen, even just as needed or on a daily basis, find benefits. Um, there's no question. And, and uh, like I said, you don't get to say 100% very often in the medical world, but I find that even you know, one of my youngest patients with leukemia is just a two-year-old um, being on cannabis had gained gain weight back. He had been in the ICU twice, uh, pediatric ICU, um, with severe problems from the chemo. I mean, think about this little boy, he's so tiny and you're pouring chemo into his body. And if you talk to the parents, they'll tell you it's night and day. He's been able to continue with treatment, and basically, cannabis is protecting him and helping prevent um, the side effects of the toxins that are there to kill the cancer.
0: Yeah, and how how often do you hear pushback from other doctors?
1: Well, it's gotten better. You know, I've been doing this now for ten years, so I would say in the beginning it was like really, you know, doctors didn't want to listen; they didn't want to hear anything, but. Look, with all the attention in the media and then just the very recent changes in California with legalization, we're starting to see a big interest actually from doctors. So I would say in the beginning there was pushback, but it's changed. I used to joke around that the doctors were like the three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. They just didn't (laughs) hear about it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to talk about it. Like a patient would bring it up and the doctor would like walk out of the room without saying anything. But now, what I'm hearing from my patients, many of them are saying, My doctor told me to look into this. My doctor's talking about it as an option. Even many of the children's hospitals, you know, I take, still take care of very sick children with cannabis now. Um, many of the children's hospitals have put policies in place so that children who are on cannabis oil, when they go into the hospital, if they need a procedure or some type of treatment, they're able to continue to take it. Where it used to be that. You know, they kind of made a big deal about it. And parents were kind of trying to do it on the sly. Um, But it's really changed. Um, Some good news is I've been asked by some of the larger HMOs here in California to give educational lectures to all of their doctors. So I do think we're moving in the right direction.
0: Wow, that is really astonishing. That's the first I've heard of, you know, large insurance companies actually getting into this mix, because to date... It seems that there's been absolutely no support from the insurance industry as a whole for cannabis therapy, and yet there's so much to gain by embracing it. I'm very delighted to hear that is something that an HMO is considering.
1: Well, and I think part of it is the doctors are hearing it from their patients. And unfortunately, you don't get taught this in medical school or residency. So if you're out practicing as a physician, where are you going to find the information? And you know right. that was one of the reasons I wrote my book, but also you they want to hear from a credible source of information, another physician or a researcher, about how patients are using it because how can you have a meaningful conversation with your patient if you 're in the dark?
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and like you said, there's no shortage of scientific evidence, although you know in the united states we've been so restricted from conducting meaningful research that's sanctioned by the us government so you know we're still caught in that catch 22 when it comes to federal regulation and and testing for efficacy and safety and all of those things that they require to move it out of the scheduling But it's interesting to me how rapidly now things are moving, whereas just a year ago, there was such a shortage of people from the medical profession who were willing to go out on a limb and say, hey, yeah, I do embrace this. (laughs) So I'm sure you've noticed it.
1: And I think doctors are one of the last groups to accept it. Unfortunately, when we go through medical school and residency, we're taught that cannabis is a drug of abuse. There is no conversation about its medical applications. And unfortunately, when you are trained that way, you think that way. And so we have to do a lot of um, like undoing the brainwash, brainwashing, so to speak. And I think doctors are just reluctant. Um, but again, it is changing. And so th- at
0: least we're, we're moving in the right direction. And your specialty is actually in emergency medicine. Is that correct?
1: I was actually pediatric emergency medicine. So I trained as a pediatrician and then practiced as a pediatric emergency medicine specialist. So right now I'm, you know, I still see pediatric patients in my practice, even though I've been doing this a decade, I would say the first pediatric patient came back in about 2012 2013 to my office. Uh, with a seizure disorder and it was uh, that was the kind of the beginning of the expansion of the pediatric part of my practice. Uh, which right now that's what I'm focused on. I'm seeing so many children with epilepsy, uh, what we call intractable epilepsy, which means that they're not responding to any of the conventional medications. I'm taking care of a lot of kids who have autism. Some kids have both diagnoses, so we're seeing dual diagnoses, autism and epilepsy, which is always so difficult to treat. Oh, wow. And then a lot of kids with genetic syndromes, a lot of kids with cancer, uh, some kids with severe... um, Tourette syndrome or ADHD, um, other uh, psychiatric type conditions like severe anxiety and depression, OCD. Um, so the application of cannabis in, in the pediatric uh, age group has really expanded over the past few years. And, you know, interesting, I'd like to bring this up, really interesting, if you, if you don't mind me sharing real quick some research. Oh, go ahead. In March, um, a journal called Molecular Autism published a study from Stanford University right here in California that looked at uh, plasma levels of endocannabinoid in children with autism and they found that these children had such low levels that they could actually pick out which kids had autism based on the blood work without actually seeing the child. So children are missing their endocannabinoids, um, which in those particular patients, it's part of their, it's probably just one of the puzzle pieces that that kind of manifests as autism, but it is a um, clear cut endocannabinoid deficiency in these children. And when you find an endocannabinoid deficiency, right, any deficiency in the body you want to replace, I mean, one of the most um, common Uh, things to replace lately is vitamin D. Everybody's getting tested and everybody's showing that their vitamin D levels are low and people are taking vitamin D supplements. If someone's low in their natural endocannabinoid in in their compounds that their body makes to regulate messages between cells, what are you supposed to do with that? Do you leave a child unregulated or do you attempt to regulate it with the plant cannabinoids? And so- as a physician here in California, I'm allowed to treat patients, and we have found some really spectacular results um, with some kids who were nonverbal actually starting to talk, with kids who were very, very aggressive. In fact, I even have families where the parents are afraid of the child because the child's so aggressive, um, who are now calm, the aggression, the meltdowns are gone. Um, it's really kind of amazing. Of course, clinical trials would be great. What dose should we be giving them? Which compounds, CBD, THC, CBG? You know, there's a lot of compounds available now. But what's nice is that we do know that these compounds are safe. And certainly, under my medical supervision or other doctors medically supervising, we've been able to really make a large impact in the quality of life for these kids, but also for their families.
0: I've done a couple of episodes around autism, and I've spoken to a lot of moms who have experienced great results with cannabis related to autism. But you are absolutely the first doctor I've ever spoken to who was able to identify an actual deficiency in children who have these varying conditions, a deficiency in the endocannabinoid system. I think that's fascinating. So just with the simple blood work.
1: Right. Well, and it wasn't simple blood work. It was complicated
0: blood work. I'm sure, but it sounds simple. Sorry.
1: (laughs) That's okay. It would be nice if the blood work was something that was available, commercially available, so that parents could, you know, maybe possibly follow results, see if their child's endocannabinoid system is back in balance, or maybe a marker when a child is very small and there's initially some symptoms. Maybe... You know the child's regressing. So there's lots of uses for the blood work, but it also gives us a medical indication to replace the cannabinoids. And I understand, of course, that pharmaceutical companies are going to want to come up with their own cannabinoid replacement treatment, but at, right now we have the cannabis plant and um, we have different compounds that we can use to try to see what works best. And remember too, you know, we're, The goal, of course, is no one's trying to sedate or intoxicate these children. What we're trying to do is replace a compound so that their brain can be back in what we call homeostasis balance so that they can have a better quality life and function. When I have a parent call me and say, my child started speaking for the first time and the child's seven years old, it feels miraculous, but it's not. It's just that there's now these compounds that we're missing, they're back in the brain and they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do, which is helping the brain um, send the proper messages.
0: So what do you tell people who argue the idea that cannabis is dangerous for developing brains and that it, it actually slows their progression of growth?
1: So that is a great question. So this is my answer to that. We cannot compare a child with an endocannabinoid deficiency, right, that manifests as an illness such as seizures or autism or severe anxiety and depression where they can't even get up and go to school, right, or Tourette syndrome or ADHD, right? These are medical conditions. You do not compare those people, those children, with teenagers who are smoking pot recreationally, who are using just THC all the time to get stoned. It's apples and oranges. And my analogy to that is, if you ha- bring me a child who's, let's say, 12 years old and their blood sugar level is 900, you know, pretty much by definition, they have type 1 diabetes, right? And I'm going to recommend that they take insulin. Their body's not, their pancreas is not making insulin, so they require an external source of insulin. Would I give insulin to the child whose blood sugar is not elevated? Of course not. We are treating a brain condition, we're treating an endocannabinoid deficiency in these children who are ill. And my you know, proof that it's not causing regression in those developing brains is that those brains are already struggling with regression and when we replace with cannabis, and you can talk to me, you can talk to the families, you can talk, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of families that will tell you this, that their children are starting to make the milestones. They're reaching the developmental milestones. They're starting to talk. You know, in my book, I talk about a little girl that came to me at age nine or 10 with a severe seizure disorder, uh, had tried multiple different medications. I mean, their next step was to have brain surgery, a piece of her brain taken out. Brain surgery. Wow. And they decided to try cannabis oil and it changed everything. And I will tell you that from one year to the next, this little girl made such rapid progression in her development that when she came to me at nine, she could not read and write. And the next year she was reading and writing. And that's on cannabis oil. So how is it that it's affecting her brain detrimentally when she couldn't read or write for nine years on seizure on seizure treatment with uncontrolled seizures, but now she's reading and writing. So and again, you know, I can't tell you how many families have said to me, my child first said Mama at the age of six or said you know, is trying to say, I love you. These are kids who are severely sick and we just cannot compare them to a healthy teenager who likely should not be medicating or, you know, getting high because their endocannabinoid system is crucial to the kind of the fine tuning of the brain during the teenage years. So it's again, comparing apples and oranges, sick children missing endocannabinoids is not the same as a healthy teenager who, you know, wants to get high recreationally.
0: I think that's an amazing way to explain it. And I think that'll help people to really understand the difference. And what a great analogy too, with insulin, because you're absolutely right. You know, and I think the same could be said for kids who come in with a broken leg, and they're given some form of opiate medicine. And then there are teenagers who are recreating on OxyContin <laughs> and really doing themselves some serious damage.
1: Right. That's exactly right. Mm. And the endocannabinoid system is present during fetal development, and it's crucial to the development of the brain during that time. And then the second time kind of it's, it's crucial to development is during teenage years, basically ages 13 to 18. When the endo a normal endocannabinoid system is actually helping to lay down the neuronal circuitry, the brain circuitry. So I mean, think about a 13-year-old and think about someone who's 20. There's a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're and the a normal functioning endocannabinoid system is crucial to that development. And so if a teenager is healthy and doing well and developing normally. We really don't want them to introduce something externally. Now, if they do, they probably do have to take a lot of cannabis to kind of wreck things, so to speak. There are studies that say that if you're using it during teenage years, you increase your risk of mental health issues during your twenties, and maybe there's an eight-point IQ difference that's lower if you use a lot of cannabis uh, during the teenage years. You know, but in general, my recommendation is to minimize the external substances, if you will. Uh, in a teenage brain. Of course, that's the age at which they all want to experiment, right? So um, it's always hard to kind of convince, but I still think that, you know, just having that knowledge and, and again, this is about education. If you were to take a group of eight-year-olds and kind of explain to them that their brain should be left alone during their teenage years, unless they were sick. And if they need, if they were sick, then this would be medicine for them, right? Then we might get somewhere rather than telling people don't, oh, just don't do drugs. I mean, that's not really the best way to explain things.
0: And in fact, that often has the opposite effect <laughs> <laughs> too. say, don't touch this. And what do they do? They touch it. You know, they're rebellious. True. True. Hmm. Interesting. And something else you mentioned, too, when you're talking about the pharmaceuticals coming up with drugs that actually make matters worse for children, we have a situation right now where for the very first time a pharmaceutical company has been approved for Epidiolex a, a CBD based medicine cannabinoid based medicine but they're asking $32,000 for treatments and i just wanted to hear your thoughts about that
1: right i um, i thought it was it's 32,000 a year i think it's still very very expensive um well, so here's my thoughts on it. You know, when a child's having seizures, all options, and uncontrollable seizures, brain-damaging seizures, all options should be on the table. So if you live in a state where medical cannabis is not available, you can't get approved, you don't have access, certainly this allows a child to get some CBD, and hopefully it will help them. What we have to remember is not every single person responds to medicine the same way. I have patients that come to see me with severe epilepsy and we've tried multiple different CBD preparations in addition to other cannabinoid preparations and they're, they don't respond. And why somebody is a non-responder is still unclear to me. But the way I look at it is it needs to be an option. So I'm not necessarily against you know, that particular product just because I see so many families that might benefit from it if it's really the only thing. The one thing is if insurance company will pick up the tab, that would be great because many of my families are are um, spending a huge amount of money out of pocket for dosing high doses of CBD for their child with, with epilepsy. I have one family that has two children, both with epilepsy and autism, and they spend about $2,000 a month on cannabis oil, which is pretty expensive. Um, And that's hard to maintain. And who knows how long the the children will have to be on it. I mean, theoretically for the rest of their lives. And if insurance would pick that up, that would be really nice. So I I think it's a good option to have that drug available. Um, For some families, I think it will be a life-saving option. I think it will help their children and hopefully insurance will cover it. Again, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. I just can't imagine that a family would be able to pay out of pocket if that was their only
0: option. I think you're probably right about that. I wanted to kind of go back to the blood work again, because I'm so intrigued by what you said. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any correlation between environmental exposure to concentrates like glyphosate, which is in a lot of the GMO foods that we eat and the children who are diagnosed with autism or epilepsy or any of the other learning disabilities, things that affect the brain, that cannabis is helping and whether you've drawn any kind of correlation between those.
1: Well, I know that that's certainly a concern. And I'll tell you that a lot of the families that I work with are strict you know, with their diets, meaning they're only eating organic. Many of these kids are either gluten-free or dairy-free or sugar-free or all of the above, and they're trying very hard to maintain the healthiest possible diet. There's no question that some of these kids respond to um, these dietary choices. I have not done any testing on these patients. Um, But I do have some families that have reached out to other specialists who do this, and they do find that maybe the child um, has had some exposure somewhere along the line that caused some issues. It's hard because there's so many variables when you think about, you know, what our kids are exposed to. I mean, is it the, we put sunscreen on their skin so that they can go play at the park and maybe that's the toxin. Or, you know, it's very hard to sort it all out between diet and some of the other things that the kids are exposed to. Um, I encourage families to really take a look at diet. Um, some do, some find it very difficult to restrict to just organic cause it is so expensive. Um, and sometimes you have a child that's just super picky and only wants to eat two or three items and how are you supposed to get them to eat and grow if they're really that picky and you, you know, they only want pasta or they only want, you know, whatever it is. Um, I mean, I've had families in my practice who tell me their children only eat like, you know, chicken fingers and mac and cheese. And we kind of roll our eyes at that. But at the same time, if that's really the only thing that they'll eat, if the parents try to do the best they can to give them the cleanest chicken, you know, homemade, organic and all of that. So I haven't really found um, in my own experience, you know, any correlation, but I I, I do think that they're there certainly is and and certainly the literature supports um how dangerous pesticides are
0: yeah across the board i mean it's such an astonishing figure of children who are diagnosed with autism or some other related disorder at such an early age and children who might have just developed normally without any kind of environmental exposure such as that and I, it's it's something that I think that we as a society really need to take a look at. And I was really actually quite encouraged that a court put out such a large uh, reward for someone who was diagnosed with cancer as a direct result of exposure to Roundup, which is made primarily of glyphosate, and I'm sure you heard about that. But it's going to be interesting what happens down the road, too. I mean, as we start finding cannabis is an effective therapy for some of these conditions that are treated with such toxic doses of conventional medicine, you know, what's going to happen as, as the awareness grows about that, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I want to talk a little bit about your book, because I haven't had an opportunity yet to read it. And I actually really look forward to reading it but the title is certainly very intriguing when you look at, you know, how the world's most misunderstood plant is healing everything from chronic pain to epilepsy. You did mention a little bit about what inspired you, but tell us a little more about the book.
1: Well, I have a patient who was coming to see me yearly and would email me questions. And one time in the office, we were talking about cannabinoid receptors and the endocannabinoid system I was educating him and he said where can I get all this information like where can I go and I thought I you know I guess there's some websites this is a number of years ago and I thought well but you know is it a credible source you never know online right and so I thought hmm, maybe I should write a book so I would say that was probably 2014 and I just started you know thinking of this this young man who had a very serious chronic illness who was so interested in this stuff and i thought hmm, let me start putting this together and i gave myself some time and you know i'd work on it here and there and then finally but the end of 2016 i i said that's it we're going to have it out for 2017 and so um it was um published in december 2016 i have to go back in and revise because things change but um, really the book um, is just to give people an understanding of what is the endocannabinoid system what is in this plant and then how the two interrelate and connect and then how to use cannabis as medicine i have a chapter that's called how to use cannabis as medicine and i can't give specific dosing advice because every person is different what other medicines are you on how sensitive are you to this Do you like the way THC makes you feel? Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't want to use THC. So it's not meant to give people specific advice. It's meant to educate people about the endocannabinoid system, the plant, and also how the products are labeled, um, what different ratios like a CBD to THC ratio is, and what other compounds are available, what the terpenes are. And then throughout the book, I intersperse some uh, patient testimonials. Um, By no means does 100% of of the people that come to me respond, but certainly it's over 75%. And certainly this should be an option for people who either have struggled with chronic illness and can't find the answer, or for people who um, dislike being on pharmaceuticals. I'll share with you a quick story. Today, I saw a little girl for the first time. I say little girl. She's 15, and she's been struggling since she was seven years old with chronic pain, and she has tried lots of different things. So basically, half her life she has spent with untreated pain, and when you look at her, she looks well, and that's kind of almost the definition of somebody with an endocannabinoid deficiency. They look well but they don't feel well. They function, but they, again, they just, they don't feel well. They have these, you know, and she's had multiple MRIs and she's had all kinds of tests and nothing shows anything structural. She doesn't have autoimmune disease. She's been worked up the wazoo as they say. And to me, she screams endocannabinoid deficiency, right? Messages that are being sent unregulated and there's no feedback loop. And that's exactly what the endocannabinoid system is. So I'm hopeful for her. And the mom was practically in tears when we were talking about the endocannabinoid system and kind of how this girl kind of fits this, you know, chronic pain. And unfortunately, Western medicine doesn't have much to offer her. And it's interesting in adults, they'll hand out opiates. But, you know, for teenagers, they just don't do that. It's just, it's very. Um, scary to give teenagers opiates. So this poor girl just suffers. And uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to uh, talk with you again and give you great follow-up with this young lady. But I find it's very hopeful. And um, that's who the book is for. In fact, the mom told me she read the book and that's why she came in to see me.
0: Wow. And I can imagine that most people with an endocannabinoid deficiency don't Know or understand yet that that might be the cause of their main problems.
1: Well, the mom actually said to me today, "How come nobody's even mentioned the endocannabinoid system in the past eight years of looking for an answer?" And I said, "We're not taught about it in medical school. We're not taught about it in residency. And if we are, ha, are if we have an inkling as to what it is, we're terrified as a group, doctors. When I say we, to talk about it because it's a Schedule One drug." And i'm terrified you know and people are terrified they're going to lose their medical license that they're not going to be able to write for other prescriptions that they'll lose their job if they talk about cannabis with their patients and
0: i can imagine
1: something that everybody should be clear about is that there is a precedent case through the uh, ninth circuit court of appeals that allows physicians to have free speech with their patients when talking about cannabis We cannot lie about it. I cannot tell you it will help you live to be 200 years old with a glorious uh, long blonde hair. Okay. I'm not allowed to say that, but I am allowed to say what we know about cannabis, uh, um, that it's an anti-inflammatory, that it helps to treat pain, that you might be able to get off other pharmaceuticals, anything that's within um, the realm of what we know about it. So... When doctors say, Oh, I can't talk about that or I'm restricted, that is not true. There is a precedent court case that allows physician free speech. It's an elevated relationship between a physician and a patient, in that we are, um, the reason we're in that relationship is for your benefit, not for ours, and we're supposed to be helping patients get better. Or at least understand what's wrong with them, and so when I hear this, so doctors are, well, I'm, oh, I don't talk about it. Or, My doctor says he can't talk about it. It's a bunch of, it's a bunch of baloney. Um, they're allowed to talk about it, and then the other thing is, is even if you felt uncomfortable recommending it or you know being the doctor on record, so to speak, you could still talk to your patient about it and say, you know, go find somebody else who, who can help you with that. But unfortunately, I think the doctors that this mom came across in seeking help for the daughter. I just don't think they knew anything about it. I don't even think they could put, you know, two and two together when it came to the endocannabinoid system. And it's really, we're doing a big disservice. And we're talking about a a system in our body that's reportedly the most widespread receptor system. How are we not thinking about it? How are we not even in putting it into the mix when we're diagnosing people?
0: Well, especially considering that it modulates so many different functions from from immunity to neurological responses and neuroprotectivity, and it, the list just goes on and on and on. And someone I heard say that it is, they've figured out that it's the seventh largest system in the human body. Is that what you found as well?
1: I don't know about the number they talk about it being the most widespread receptor system because the receptors really are all over just about. And so, Mm -hmm. and remember too, this is so fascinating to me. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, when we go to medical school, um, we learn by like systems. So you learn the GI system, the neurologic system, the, uh, rheumatologic system. And one of the things that connects them all is the endocannabinoid system. So, you know, I, I sometimes think, you know, you'll go see it, you'll have some, you know, like this young lady, this little, this 15-year-old I saw today. So she's seen probably 10 or 12 different doctors and they all specialize in a certain system, but nobody's kind of, you know, connected it. That it's not neurologic, it's not rheumatologic, it's not her blood system, it's not her GI. It's this endocannabinoid system that's widespread that links them all. And I that may also be why some doctors are missing it is that they're really focused on just one system and they don't look outside that system, you know, for illness.
0: That's actually fascinating. Two years ago when, when I first started this show, I interviewed, I think it was with Julesy Montero and, and Heather Manus, who are two nurses who have really been out there educating people about the endocannabinoid system for quite some time now. And they had done a study, just an informal study, of the medical schools in our country who actually even mentioned the endocannabinoid system at all. And I think at that time that they completed this, there were only like 15 schools out of thousands that actually even uh, mentioned it in a positive way in a course. And I thought that was really fascinating, and I'm really wondering how much that's improved in the last several years, because I mean, certainly this is something that is critically important now that we know about it. The cat is out of the bag. There are so many studies, and especially in Israel about the endocannabinoid system. So I wonder, and I wonder if you've heard how often medical schools are, are now adding this to their, their syllabus. Uh,
1: it's unfortunate. I don't see it being added. Um, I was at Still. a- re- yeah, I was at a recent uh, meeting at a local medical school and uh, a colleague raised their hand and said, when are, we, when are you adding this to the curriculum? And one of the guys in charge, a physician in charge said, oh, we're booked. I mean, they're just, it's packed. The curriculum's packed. We really don't have any place to put this. So that's the attitude, unfortunately. And I just think it's going to take time and I just think it's going to take young doctors to be open to it. I definitely see that there's an interest with young doctors. And part of that is, you know, here where, where I see young doctors in California is they're hearing about it from their patients. If they're residents, they're working with people and they're hearing people say, oh, yeah, no, I use CBD oil or I have cannabis as part of my regimen so they can't ignore it anymore. It's there. And like you said, the cat's out of the bag. And I just think it's just going to take a whole new generation of, of, uh, physicians to, uh, kind of embrace it and move forward with it.
0: Yeah. It's so, it's so tragic to think of all of the people who over the last 80 years who have missed out on this incredible medicine that, could have either saved their lives or made their lives so much more tolerable. And, you know, I can't help but think also of the people who are probably needing it the most are and who have the most severe deficiencies of the endocannabinoid system are the elderly because, you know, their bodies just are no longer manufacturing it out of whatever chocolate or echinacea that they take, <laughs> So yeah, it's really, it's really quite tragic to think about it, but I think you're right. It might take a generation more to uh, get this into mainstream medicine. And I can't help but feel that we're on a path right now that's going to forever change the landscape of, of treating patients with, with a kinder and gentler medicine.
1: (laughs) You know, it's interesting because I have had some doctors reach out to me locally who have elderly parents and they've asked me about it because they see, well, gee, you know, I'm online. I don't want my mom taking all these drugs. And I'm reading online that cannabis might work. And then they kind of track me down and they'll call me and just say, Hey, you know, do you mind if I, you know, pick your brain for five minutes? And one of these doctors actually is the head of a residency program and asked me to do grand rounds at the hospital where he he runs this training program. And like, how terrific is that? That now they want me to come in and to educate the residents, so, like I said, it is changing. we can 't expect it to change overnight it 's just we have so much brainwashing to undo, but at the same time i 'm very optimistic because it it is um, moving in the direction um, that is opening it up you know to physicians. I will tell you though that you know it, the general public in, is very open to it i mean. Uh, they're the ones that are being prescribed all these crazy medicines and are saying, I don't want to take that. That's terrible, right? That's uh, I, You go online and you read the side effects of a drug. And look, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. I do think that there are plenty of good pharmaceuticals out there, blood pressure medicines. And for some people with diabetes and whatnot, anything that might like arrhythmia of your heart, you're going to want to take your medicine. It's, these are life-threatening conditions, but for what I call quality of life conditions, pain, sleep, anxiety, appetite, nausea. those These things you're not going to die from, but certainly um, they affect your, your day-to-day functioning, your day-to-day quality of life. That's really where cannabis plays a big role. And um, I just find it fascinating when people come in on seven different medications And three months later, they tell me, I'm just using cannabis. It's my one-stop shop. I don't need all those seven different medicines for seven different symptoms.
0: That is quite astonishing, actually. When people are able to titrate down to like only one medicine, They've, they've slowly but surely come off of all of the other ones. I had that experience with my father, who was on just a cocktail of benzodiazepine and and NSAIDs and all sorts of different medicines that were just wrecking havoc on his liver. And cannabis turned out to be really the only drug that he needed to take after a while. So yeah, it's it's very interesting to me. So you do a lot of speaking on the cannabis event circuit, I've noticed. Are you also... Speaking at non-cannabis events, do you have an opportunity to do that often?
1: Sometimes. So, you know, it just depends on the event. But I I sometimes speak at, you know, an aut- autism conferences here and there. And just to get the word out, of course. And then, um, you know, I've been invited to speak at a uh, psychology meeting. Where they just want to have somebody speak about cannabis and how people are using it for mental health conditions. So that part of it is opening up. You know, I still have to work in my practice, so I can't go to every conference or every meeting that I get invited to. Um, But I do try to educate those people who are open to this who are not in the cannabis industry.
0: And are you finding that people who are not in the cannabis industry are completely intrigued and willing and interested in learning?
1: Absolutely. I was invited to speak at a group um, here in Southern California, about an hour away from my office. Uh, It's a group that helps families access uh, services for their special needs children. And many of them are also special needs adults. Um, And so I went and I spoke there and everybody in the audience was just like, they had never heard of the endocannabinoid system. They didn't really realize that you know, a lot, well, this is the the reality is that if you don't know about the endocannabinoid system, you may look at cannabis and think, oh, it's a hoax. This whole medical thing is a hoax, right? But if you understand that that we're programmed for these compounds through the endocannabinoid system, there is a what we call a target of treatment. And if you look into the scientific literature, you'll see all throughout the literature looking at how... Uh, whether it's an endocannabinoid or a plant-derived cannabinoid, how uh, the endocannabinoid system is a novel um, target for treatment. I mean, you know, this is how drug companies talk and also, you know, the goal. But we have a system that interacts with this plant, and why we would ignore that is is beyond me, and why we would ignore the plant and try to recreate the wheel is beyond me. But it's a... Um, these groups, once you, you kind of share this with them, they get it. Okay. This is science. This is not somebody making claims. This is not somebody trying to sell me something. This is that every person has an endocannabinoid system and maybe my loved one is off in their endocannabinoid system. And maybe this'll be the thing that helps them. And again, to me, cannabis is so safe, especially when medically supervised that why wouldn't you try it? Why it should not be a drug of last resort. It should be something that you try uh, up front. If it doesn't work, it's not going to harm you. Um, It'd be disappointing, but you're not going to walk away from it with um, side effects that are irreversible. Uh, there are some pharmaceuticals that give irreversible side effects. One of the seizure drugs that parents often get asked to sign off on can actually cause permanent blindness, and it may not stop your seizures. So when when you're talking about a drug like that, how do you make the case that cannabis should be last resort after that drug?
0: Wow, that's a really, really good point. And I just wish that this were like universally accepted. And there are so many people living in states where regulation is not even an option. Um, Let me ask you this. Let's say someone is in a state that doesn't uh, allow for any kind of medical cannabis use. And they're curious about their own symptoms and whether or not cannabis should be an option for them. For people who have, and children especially, what should mothers look for if, if they're suspecting that their children have a serious cannabinoid deficiency in their systems?
1: Well, you know, that's hard because when you're talking about, you know, like how to diagnose it, um, it can be very subtle, but I mean, we know the endocannabinoid system plays a crucial role in, in seizures and, and development of seizures. Um, it, obviously, now that we have some substantial work on the receptors and on the plasma endocannabinoid levels in autism, we know that there's an imbalance there. Um, I, unfortunately, there just are not enough doctors that are doing this um, and that's why I'm trying to educate. Part of my office, we actually have an educational center that we just opened in May of this year and we're ramping up a series of lectures starting in September that are you can either attend in person or um, attend the webinar. But it's hard for me to help people who obviously are not my patients and I can't take care of everybody. So I'm just hoping that by, you know, educating doctors and nurses and other people in the healthcare world that we can kind of expand the access. It, It breaks my heart to think of a family sitting in a state that where they don't have access um, whose child may be having so many seizures that there actually is brain damage ongoing, and they're being told by the physicians, no, that you know you're not going to don't use medical cannabis, or we'll report you to child protective services if you use it. I mean, this is why people pick up and move to Colorado, or why they pick up and move to California to have access, and that's that's so sad to me because there is enough science, and look, I've been doing this for ten years and I haven't harmed anybody. And whatever, phys- whatever people might say about what they're afraid of with this, I've been doing it. And I, I'm, I'm a good doctor. I pay attention to my patients. I follow up with them. I answer emails all day and all night long. It's, um, it's, uh, but I, I feel safer doing this than prescribing the medications that I was prescribing to people back in the day. And whatever... You know, I had a chance to talk to some doctors in uh, Australia and New Zealand and I told them whatever fears they have are unfounded. They're all just kind of made up fears. What are you afraid of? That somebody might get high? Really? I mean, we're giving kids five different drugs. We're giving people opiates. We're giving people Xanax and other benzodiazepines. That's what you're worried about? That someone might get high? And the reality is, is that I have tons of patients who have never experienced the intoxication associated with cannabis. They just don't have it because they're not using THC. They're using all the other compounds. And so those fears are unfounded. And so I don't understand why we still have states that don't pass law, that haven't passed laws and um, why people don't have access. It's, it's, I'm doing it and the sky hasn't fallen and I haven't harmed anybody. And uh, in fact, I have patients who say to me, in fact, I had... (laughs) a couple that came in today who said, we feel great. She was 12 years on Xanax and she's got off over this past year using cannabis oil. I mean, that's a big deal, right? So, yeah. so where's the fear? What 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 are we afraid of? And again, it all boils down to you know, the big bad cannabis brainwashing that happens when we're younger and then kind of reinforced um, as we get a little bit older. But I, again, I do see that turning around It's hard for me to give advice to people in other states because, to be perfectly honest, um, until physicians or nurses or somebody steps up to being able to help these people, unfortunately, they're going to be without help. And it's heartbreaking.
0: It is heartbreaking. It really is. Uh, We've got a lot of work to do to get us out of this uh, reefer madness, 80 years of brainwashing. (laughs) So absolutely. Absolutely. Oh Well, Dr. Goldstein, I am very appreciative that you were able to take some time out to talk to us about this. It's just such an important, it, it's important for people to hear from medical professionals who are actually in the field doing this and having success with their patients. And I would love to follow up with you some more down the road. And I wish you the best of luck at the Cannabis Science Conference. I imagine that's going to be an incredible event, and I wish I could be there. But no doubt I'll hear about it, (laughs) for sure. But thank you so much. Absolutely. Oh, well, Dr. Goldstein, I am very appreciative that you were able to take some time out to talk to us about this. It's just such an important it's important for people to hear from medical professionals who are actually in the field doing this and having success with their patients. And I would love to follow up with you some more down the road. And I wish you the best of luck at the Cannabis Science Conference. I imagine that's going to be an incredible event. And I wish I could be there. But no doubt I'll hear about it, (laughs) for sure. But thank you so much.
1: Excited to be at the conference, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me, too. I think that this is important information that we have to get out there to people.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I will let people know how to reach you um, when, when this... Episode is archived online and it will be shortly after it airs. So, and I'll I'll keep you apprised of that. And um, you know, please feel free to share any of the information that you'd like to share with us. We'd be happy to publish it on on our site as well, just to help get the word out. Are there any last thoughts? Any anything you have a burning desire to let people know?
1: No, I think we covered it all. I just hope that people understand that they this is safer than the vast, vast majority of pharmaceuticals. And if it's you're listening to this, and it's something you thought of, and you're you weren't sure, don't be afraid. I I take care of children, um, very young children who take this and have are well, and they're who are now well, who are not being harmed by it. And you know, just don't let fear paralyze you in making your healthcare
0: decisions. It, it's you know stick with the science and forget all the brainwashing. Good point. And I I think that same advice applies to physicians as well, people who are living in states where cannabis is not yet regulated for medical use. So, yeah, good advice. I am getting the signal that it is time to wrap it up. But again, Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much.
1: All right, thank you so much.
0: So, it's time to bring yet another show to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guest, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that she's doing, or if you'd like to learn how you can obtain a copy of her book, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find her bio along with information and links to her website. While you're there, we invite you to check out the events page. We have a couple of events coming up with our partners. The Cannabis Science Conference is taking place in Portland, and US Cannabis Conference and Expo is taking place in Miami later on this month. We have so many others to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canosphere Biotech, Alpine Miracle, and Health Terra. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Eric Goodall, the composer of our theme song, Evergreen, and the production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for making us shine. And it goes without saying how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, Same place for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day.